Welcome, everybody, to the Coach's Drive podcast. Summer football's underway. Chad, you had a pretty good day yesterday at 707, didn't you? I mean, are we going to tell everybody that? or <laughs> why, why can't we talk about it? Can't we just keep that under wraps? Well, we won't name what happened, but... I'm going to give the Bill Belichick thing. We did some things well. We did some things poor. You know, we got to coach better, got to play better. We'll get him try to get better. Yeah, keeping all that stuff under the table is probably going to help you win 10 state championships today, just like Eric Kimry, who we did get to bring on to the show. Coach Kimry is from Hammond, for those of you who don't know. In South Carolina, he coaches in the Skiza division, which is the private school league. Uh, but that doesn't mean he doesn't have good players, right, Chad? He has very good players. He literally has the number one player in the country right now. Jordan Birch, he's a 6'6", 270 defensive end. You know, we're going to have people who talk about him. He's also got Alex Huntley, uh, another 6'4", 270 defensive tackle. Imagine those two guys having to block those two guys with Ski's offensive line. Yeah, little Johnny's five foot five, 160 <laughs> pounds soaking wet. Can you go block this kid who has offers from Clemson? And I'm if you sorry. don't, I'm going to be mad. What, what, how would you react, Chad, if you had to block Jordan Birch with little Johnny, who's 5'6", 160? Are you going to scream at him? You got to find a way, son. Hey, just you gotta try. find a way. You, you got to find a way. You got to make it work. <laughs> and um, it gets killed every time. Make the adjustment. No, no. What you do is yell at the offensive line coach and say, get somebody in there that can do it. That's because- the th- So there's a lot of beauties to being a head coach. And the big one that I always tell everybody is even though I'm the offensive coordinator, I get to take credit for the defense too. Even though I don't call defense plays, you're a head coach. I get to take credit for both of them. That's one great advantage. And the other one is you can yell at everybody and not have to necessarily yell at the players. So you're exactly right. O-line coach is getting it first. You realize how irrational that is, right? To yell at your O-line coach for him not being able to find a way to block Jordan Birch. Get somebody else in there who can. Okay, triple team him. Triple team him. (laughs) We're running the quadruple option. We're leaving everyone unblocked on the D-line except for him. But It still wouldn't matter. It wouldn't. But, yeah, he's at, he's at Hammond. Coach Kimry, 39 years old. He played quarterback at Carolina, and he is known for the fade. He threw a fade pass for a touchdown against Mississippi State. Lou Holtz's, was it second year? I believe it was the second year, right after they had lost every game. And Mississippi State was a top 25 team. He threw a fade for a touchdown as the backup quarterback for, like, one play. And that's kind of his claim to fame as a South Carolina quarterback. Won the game but, against Mississippi State. Yeah, he did. he's known for but he is an offensive guru. He talks a lot about the philosophical approach to coaching, doesn't he, Chad? He really does, and that's something that I think you and I both like a lot. We try to be pretty analytical with the way we think about football. Um, I think one of my personal weaknesses probably is I'm analytical about the game, but I'm not as analytical about the emotional side, the team chemistry side. Um, which is obviously just as important. And I think that he talks a lot about that. So for me, it was perfect for me because he taught, I think some of the stuff that he's great at is probably some of the things that I need to be better at personally as a coach that grows. And during the interview, you even said, you realize you don't sound like a lot of coaches, right? Because when you listen to this guys, you're going to hear a guy that's very intelligent, that thinks about the game truly from a philosophical point of view. And it's not about necessarily yelling, not that he's saying that's wrong. It's about finding ways to get your players to play for you and motivating them uh, from a philosophical point of view. How much have you used that philosophical stuff as a Dragon. O-line coach? I've used the English Edited. language my entire life. Edited. It. 
I've I have used it for sure. I've I've honestly I've learned from Coach Camry. I tried to implement some of that stuff out there today when I was working with him. Uh, but guys, you're gonna hear a lot of good stuff in here. Coach Camry again. He's 39 years old. He's won 10 state championships. He's only lost 17 games in his career. So he's done a amazing job as a head coach. And we're excited to have Coach Eric Camry with us. Coach Camry, man, thanks for coming on the podcast. Hey guys, thanks for having me. When me and Chad started talking about doing this and we were talking about trying to get South Carolina guys, you were one of the first guys that we thought about just because of the amount of success that you've had. And just for some of these guys who don't know, you've won 10 state championships at the age of 39. There's only two other people in the state that have ever done that. And that was Willie Varner, who was at Woodruff. He was 58 when he won his 10th. And then John McKissick, who everybody knows at Somerville, he was 72 when he won his 10th state championship. So, to start our conversation off, I just wanted to ask you, after winning state champ- 10 state championships at the age of 39, what keeps you motivated every day and what keeps you going to work? Yeah, I think first and foremost, I love being on a team. I love everything that being on a team entails, having responsibility to other people, working together with other people. Um, and I also love being around young people. I think they give me energy, they give vision, uh, they keep you kind of relevant. And um, so... Uh, I think both of those things really motivate me. Just being on a team and being around young people, uh, it's fun. Every every year is a fresh challenge and a, and a fresh set of problems that you got to kind of solve as a football coach. And I really enjoy this time of year where I'm really trying to put together the puzzle pieces and figure out how do we put the best team on the field. So uh, it hasn't gotten old yet. You never know what will happen, but you know I'm looking forward to next year for sure. So for you, is it more of like the winning is not the ultimate goal for you is the, is the, the relationship and the, the players and the team and working through the problems you have to work through as a, a coach and a team. Is that what you really enjoy about it more so than actually winning? No doubt. I think it's the struggle that I enjoy the most. I think humans are created to struggle and being a head coach, being any coach is kind of a creative struggle. You're the person that gets to, essentially take a group of people and aim them toward a common goal and, and put different people in different positions in order to make the, maximize what you as a team can do. And that, to me, is just a really energy, kind of life-giving type of thing. And so that struggle is something that I think really drives me year in and year out. It's taken me a while to realize what that is and understand that that process itself is more meaningful to me than, than a championship or a ring. Yeah. You just mentioned it briefly about how every year is a fresh year for you. How much do you change from year to year as a system? Do you, or is it just the same every year y'all have had so much success? We're going to do workouts the same way every year. We're going to do camp the same way every year. We're going to start fall practice the same way every year. Or do, are you always looking to sort of mold it to each individual team? Yeah. I, I, every year at the end of the year, I wipe off my, my white erase board and I put a quote up and it's from Plato. I think you might have, have asked me about it before, but it says many a victory has been, or will be suicidal to the victors. And I put that up there to remind myself that if I think that the things I've done in the past are going to ensure that I have success next year, then I'm going to be doomed to fail. Uh, and so I'm constantly trying to evolve. There are things that we've done well there that are, you know, foundations to our success that I don't want to ever lose. But the way we do things, we can always become more efficient. We can become more creative. I can learn how to be a better leader as a head coach. I can learn to lean on my assistants better. 
there are always fresh schemes that are out there that you need to change and adapt your offense. So I think my offense is, you know, looks a lot different than it did when I first started coaching. But there's certainly some, some again, foundational principles that I hold on to. And you were talking just then, too, about the quote, the, the Plato quote, many of victory has been and will be suicidal to the victors. And I think that's the approach that, I mean, people make fun of Nick Saban and Bill Belichick because they never seem like they enjoy winning. It almost is always just like, I'm so focused on the process and not being overcome with I'm the best that it, it looks like they don't enjoy it. So do you enjoy those championships or is it so much that you've ingrained in your mind that I'm not going to be complacent? Yeah. How, how do you balance that? How do you balance? Oh, I absolutely enjoy everyone. I mean, right. listen, if you're not having fun while you're doing this, why are you doing it? Right. And you, if you can't enjoy a victory, regardless of how flawed that victory may be, there's been times we've played terrible, but I'm like, Hey guys, we won. So I've learned to enjoy those things, but also, you know, I don't like the word process because I think the word process is a stale kind of sterile word. I love the word struggle because every year is actually a struggle. It's not a neutral thing. It's not a conveyor belt where you put your, you know, your program on it and it just smoothly glides across. It's an uphill battle. And I think that victory actually can be one of the biggest deterrents to actually engaging in that battle because, number one, a couple things happen when you win. You think that the things in the past are what allow you to win now. When the next year, the landscapes, everything's changing all the time. So it makes you stagnant. And if you, if you know anything that's stagnant too long, it begins to stink. And so I, I don't like that. Uh, and it also connects me to, uh, you know, if I focus on a past victory, I think that I'm somehow special and I've, I've done something that is magical and works better than somebody else. When I need to constantly be reinventing myself, and our team needs to constantly be growing. You know, if you're not growing, you're dying. And so uh, I think that victory can get in that way, and it does a lot for people. Isn't it so ironic how what most people are coaching for is to get victories? But at the same time, you just said sometimes a victory can be bad for you if, in, in, to, in some situations. And sometimes a loss can be good for you. I had a high school coach that would say there's no such thing as a good loss. But – I would argue that that's not necessarily true. I think that some teams get a huge wake-up call when they lose games, and it makes them realize we're not unbeatable. We have to go back to work. Have you ever had that happen in your career where y'all lost a game and then you came back and had one of the greatest finishes you've had? Has that ever happened to where you've responded in that way? Oh, absolutely. I mean, for anybody to say that, they don't know what they're talking about because that's not how you live your life. You know, right. I think you look back at your life and some of the greatest things that have ever happened to you were the hardest thing that's ever happened to you. It was a loss. Maybe it was a loss of a friend or a loved one. Uh, maybe it was a loss of a dream or an ideal. And then from there, you know, essentially there's, there's new growth that happens. So um, we've, we've certainly experienced that in football. You know, and when you talk about winning, it, it reminded me of uh, a quote from Bob Latticeer who said, wins are just outcomes. They're not good indicators. So if you're focused yeah. on outcomes all the time, sooner or later, something's going to go awry. Uh, you need to be focused on what are those indicators within your program or how you interact with kids. Uh, and to me, that's what does your relationship look like with them? How do they speak of you when you're not around? Uh, what is the legacy that you're leaving? And those things are more important. I think I know what you're probably going to say with this one, but what do you think is the most important part of your program's success? Is it 
I mean, I'm sure that it's got a lot to do with players, but is it just that you've got a system, you and your coaches have put a system together that just works? Is it you've got a culture, a united culture that's always struggling for those victories? What is it to you that you would say is the defining characteristic of your program that's made y'all so successful? I don't know. I, I would probably have to say culture is the most important thing. Uh, I would, you know, you are who you are because somebody loved you and because you're part of something bigger than yourself. So that, that with our football program, that starts with our school in general. And I'm lucky to be a part of a great school that, you know, values excellence across the board, whether it's academics or athletics or arts. And so we're a smaller piece of that culture. And within that culture, we have our own, you know, kind of manifested football culture as well. And that's the thing that you've got to protect the most because it transcends time. It transcends individuals, even myself. And I think it's a, in a, in a sense, it's a spiritual element that has an effect on everyone that comes into contact with it. So if a, if a young man comes to Hammond and he hasn't been in Hammond before, one thing I'll always tell him is, listen, man, I don't care who you are. I don't care if you're the number one player in the country, which we have right now. We're not going to become you. You're going to become us. And we protect that culture. And of course, like I said, every year we, we work on how to make it better. And uh, so I would say culture is, is far and foremost the most important thing that you can have in order to have a successful football program. What do you say are the – and I know you just said you're, you tell the player, we're not going to become you, you're going to become us, and that's awesome because you're not going to bend even if it is that number one player. But what would be those foundations? And you mentioned that the foundations of your culture – are what keep you so strong. What are some of the foundations that you don't bend on? What are things that are you're not going to compromise on with your team? Or coaches or coaches or players or uh, everything? Yeah, well, I mean, there's three premises that we kind of preach. And then from there, of course, you know, I could get into practical things like not being late and things like that. But, you know, the first thing we try to tell our guys is that they aim well, aim true, have good goals. And we make those goals every single day. And, uh, and we talk about the urgency of the moment every single day. I'll say crazy things like, hey, guys, uh, this is the last Tuesday practice of spring practice in 2019 in the history of the cosmos. And I tell them all the time that they're going to be dead soon. Uh, you know, hey, guys, <laughs> I mean, you know, we we're talking to 16 year olds. I'm like, modern medicine. Yeah, maybe you have Y'all are all going to be dead really, really soon. Think about how old the earth is. You know, and uh, and, and they, they laugh about it and stuff like that. But I'm constantly trying to remind them of the urgency of today and to enjoy it. Like, listen, I know it's hot out here, but you know what? This drill is important. And that kind of gets into my second point, which is everything matters. Everything that you do matters and everybody matters. It doesn't matter if you're the number one player in the country, if you're the quarterback, if you're a two, two-way starter or you're the scout team guy. Like every single step that you take on this field matters. And actually, it matters what you did today, too. What did you eat for lunch? How much sleep did you get last night? So we, 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 I'm trying to push them toward – I just feel like we live in a world right now where you go off to school, and the first thing they tell you is that the world doesn't matter. It has no meaning, and you got to create it yourself. Well, good luck trying to do that. No one's ever been able to do that. So I'm trying to preach to my kids the opposite. Like, this world is full of meaning. It's so, so meaningful that everything you do matters, and it has consequence that ripples throughout this entire world. It's easy to say that in a team. You know, it's like, hey, man, I know you're the third string linebacker, but you ate that double cheeseburger for lunch and you're lethargic at practice. And we just got collectively worse because you made that decision. So that's one thing that we talk a lot about. And the last thing is the struggle element. Like, you have to struggle. It's nothing's going to be given to you. I don't care. Like, this year, we'll be an overwhelming favorite to win our 
our league, and we'll have the best team we've ever had. Uh, we'll have a five-star and a four-star on our defensive line, and our other guys are really, really good too. But are we just going to sit back and think that somehow the other team's just going to let us win? We have to fight for that, and we have to struggle. And it is a struggle. And every day is a struggle to get better. It's an uphill battle. So we talk through those three concepts a lot. And then, of course, you know, there's practical things like be accountable. We really push our kids to take ownership of communication. I don't want to hear from your mom or your dad. I want to hear from you. If you're going to be five minutes late to practice, you can text me and tell me, Coach, I'm going to be five minutes late to practice. Uh, if you're going to be gone one day, well, you better be sick or something bad. But you're going to be committed to the team. So we have some of those core kind of principles that are kind of ingrained in our culture that go without saying. That's funny that you say that. We, I literally say when I'm talking to the team before every single practice and at the end of, of at the end of every single practice, at some point I say everything matters. Literally every single day before the workout yesterday, we started summer workouts yesterday. When I gathered the team up, I said everything matters. That's the first thing I always say. Yeah. Um, so it's funny that you said that. I mean, for me, that's such a big thing. They because kids don't really understand that it's impossible for them to look into the future. It's just not their brains aren't developed enough to understand what they do in June affects them in November. Um, but obviously we know that it does. So for me, it's constantly reminding them of that because they can't think it for themselves. So us as coaches has to do it for them. Yeah, I think that's 100. There's a reason that you can't rent a car to 25. Right. Fully developed. You know, right. they can't fully see the future. And I think as, as older men who have experienced life a little bit and understand how fleeting it is, it's like, you got to have that present, but it's, it's great because it's such a universal like life principle that's easy to apply in football because you can see a tangible measuring point. Like, Hey, like, like the kid that ate the double cheeseburger, you know, you affected practice. It matters what you do. And I think that's a message that kids need to hear all the time. I need to start telling my kids that they're going to die soon. I think that'll really get them going. <laughs> that's my, that's happening tomorrow at practice, man, for sure. All right, guys, you're about 20% away through this thing we call life. Well, yeah. let's get it going. But uh, always, so, I'm, I'm statistically half dead. You know, I'll be 40. <laughs> I mean, who knows, you know? So it's like, listen, yeah. it's going to happen. I might as well enjoy today. You're yeah. going to be – you've got to be out here for this two hours anyway, buddy. So you might as well enjoy it. Like, that's don't want right. wine. You committed to be out here. Let's figure out a way to enjoy it together. You were speaking about your team is going to be the overwhelming favorite. What do you do to keep them from saying, like, we are the best, we're going to win? Like, do you tap into – I know you teach philosophy at Hammond, and I know that you like to take a philosophical approach to coaching. Is it – I know a lot of coaches in that situation that would just start yelling and get <laughs> mad and think that that's going to change something. But what do you do? Do you get angry and try to scare them into it? Or do you try to tap into that that different level or the different side of the player that, that a lot of people – I think a lot of people don't access. What do you do to try to uh, push them towards not being complacent and, and fighting and being a part of the struggle? Well, one thing is, again, you got to establish a culture in which struggling is like the means and the mode of how you operate, you know? And then I think you just got to remind kids, hey, bud, you committed to this. Not only did you commit for yourself, you committed to all these other people and you're accountable to them. And right now you're not giving me the effort. And so I think you just got to call a spade a spade. You don't have to be a jerk about it. You don't have to scream. Sometimes you may need to scream because they're not paying attention. Okay. Right. Most of the time it's like, hey, guys, we said we wanted to do this and you guys aren't doing what it takes. And, you know, so I think, you know, we know as a staff what it takes to get the most out of our team. 
And when they are not doing that, then we get upset and we communicate that to them immediately. Yeah. And there was a there was another quote that I've seen you say before that is very similar to that. It said the master coaches are the ones that tap into that spiritual element that brings teams together and have them playing for something bigger than themselves. And I was curious, what are some of the ways that you've been able to do that? What have you done to get players to play for something bigger than themselves? Because I agree, if you can get guys to have a united cause that's greater than them, that's when you're going to get the best out of them. Yeah, I agree. And I think that you got to communicate that on the front end of like, we're, we're trying to do something bigger than ourselves. I always say that team chemistry is the collective amount of uh, self-sacrifice of the team. So as much as you sacrifice, it's kind of like we're going to put this pool in of self-sacrifice. And if we can all do it for the betterment of the team, now you have this like actual spiritual existence that is a team. That's why I love yeah. coaching because every team's different. Football's super dynamic, you know. But if we can all kind of essentially give ourselves over to the concept of team, we now have something that we can somewhat measure. And so I think that the guys that the coaches in the past that I studied, they're the ones that can kind of sense that, you know, in a, in a weird kind of way, like a shaman or a priest or yeah. a religious figure, because it is a religious thing because it's a spiritual element. But it's when a group of people come together and they create this thing, you know, how do I see where a problem could arise? You know, if there's a cancer in the team or there's a, some attitudes that we need to check, you know, that's the head coach's job. And it's all of our collective jobs, you know, like it's every assistant coach and um, every player's job too. And your great leaders are the ones that can sense it and the ones that can put out fires or encourage people or they need to be encouraged. So as head coaches, you know, we are the, the ministers of that spirit, so to speak. So I just, uh, to go off of that a little bit, do you realize that not a lot of South Carolina high school football coaches sound like you when you talk? <laughs> um, yeah, I do. I do. Listen, uh, like I said before, you are who you are because someone loves you. And I, I, uh, I've been around some people and I've just got a kind of curious nature and I've studied a lot of religion and philosophy and try to employ those into coaching. Uh, my dad was a coach, so I fell into it. But I'm probably more of a nerd than a coach on the side. So I'm learning how to integrate the two. But I'll take yeah. that as a compliment. No, yeah, that, I meant it as a compliment. There's nothing, definitely nothing wrong with that. As long as there's, you're thinking. There's a lot of guys like what Chad. I was thinking the same thing you were, Chad. But a lot of people think that you have to be, you have to look like Bear Bryant or the guy that was the coach for the Junction Boys that was in Texas and wouldn't let us players drink water because that meant they were soft. Like, I think there's an idea that if you are intelligent and you approach things without being uh, as manly as possible in every situation, that it somehow makes you soft or it makes you like you're not really a ball coach. And I mean ball coach because they don't say football coach. It's ball coach. coach. So you're not really a ball coach if you don't do that. So – I think, though, like you just said, players can get so used to seeing a guy that just yells and tries to motivate that way that it it can be almost something they've never seen before when you try to tap into that spiritual element of things. Um, and do you do you when you, when you talk about bringing the spiritual side of it, do you focus on do you use your faith when you're coaching? Do you talk about your faith as a coach? And I know that you're at a private school, so really. 
there would be no limitations on you with that. You know, I, I really don't a whole lot. Um, I, you know, I think that I just try to live out those core values. And, and when I use words like spiritual and religious, I don't mean like necessarily going to church. I mean, not to say I do go to church, but I'd rather my guys see me kind of for the person that I am. I try to be very honest and authentic, not only with what I believe, but more so just with even my flaws. You know, I apologize to my team sometimes because I, I, you know, there's times I make mistakes, right? So, you know, I think ultimately today, kids can see through BS faster than ever. And if you're a yeller and that's all you do, ultimately you're communicating that you, you have no idea what's going on. You're scared to death. And the only thing you can do is bark at somebody, right? And ultimately the only person that feels better is you. That's it. So all you've done is make your team worse. Don't get me wrong. There's times where you need to yell. Like that's the appropriate measure. But it should be something that you've calculated, literally a calculated yell, okay? So like for me, I always try to – I want my team to kind of be in a zone. And if they're too focused I want, or too tense, I want them to relax. I want them to play relaxed and, and, and mindful football, okay? So if they're too tense, I want them to, to relax. So I'll do things like tell jokes, uh, cut up. Before state championship games, we either dance or I tell jokes. That's what we do. There's no like rah, rah, rah. Because I'm trying to cut the ice a little bit, right? Now, when we're playing a team that's I know that we're 50 points better than, I'm a jerk. And I'm <laughs> on them. And I'm trying to raise their level of focus, right? So as a coach, that's me being the minister of the spirit, so to speak. It's like, okay, we've got to figure out a way to get our guys in the zone to where they're playing, you know, really good football. And so, but if you're yelling all the time, they don't hear you anymore. So be intentional about the words that you say to your kids because they're really smart and they can see through your BS, you know? To me, if your kids aren't going to play hard and they're not going to compete, you've got bigger issues. So yeah. what it comes down to is execution and having them focused on what their job is, not on going out there and hitting harder. Because if they're not, obviously, if they're not willing to hit, you're not going to be in a big game anyway. So, Absolutely. And that's why, I mean, that's what practice is, right? It's focus on those fundamentals. And if you can keep your fundamentals in pressure situations, now you're on to something, right? And just like you said, now a kid's he's fo he's instead of a lack of uh, effort or, or trying, it's more just a lack of fundamentals. And so you can address that as a coach. You know that's easy. Right. Now I think that it's easy to grow into a mold. Of, like I have to approach every game and just be you know mean to the players beforehand and just super intense. Whereas what you just said. You don't approach the state championship game the same way you do a team that you're going to beat by 50 points. So understanding that as a coach, I think, is really important. Is every situation is not the same, and there are different responses in different situations that, that are appropriate. And I think that what that comes down to is your ability as a person to read a situation and understand what is happening in this room do I see that my guys are too worried? Do I see that my guys are too lackadaisical? What is my response to change that to get it to the appropriate balance? And I think that ultimately is something you have to develop as a person in getting to know other people. All right. That's just emotional intelligence, right? All right. I mean, like when you walk in the kitchen and your wife's in tears, you don't like yell at her because the laundry isn't done, right? You go comfort her and say, hey, what can I do to make your day better, right? Don't be an idiot, you know. It's the same thing as a coach. It's like, but instead of one person's emotions, uh, it's a collective team. It's your it's your assistant coaches and how they're dealing with things. 
But one thing I always say is you got to be yourself too, because again, kids can see through it. You know what? I'm wired in a certain way that it's not going to work for you. And you're wired in a certain way. I love, when they, if I have a rah-rah coach and that's who he is authentically, great. Let's just make sure we do it at the right times and for the right reasons, right? And the kids will see that that's who he is. And so I think as a head coach, let your assistant coaches be themselves. And if you need to polish them up a little bit here and there, then you, you do that, you know, gently as you can. How much do you tell the truth to your players about the team you're about to play? I'm very honest. I, I, every year, the first thing I'll say to our kids is, our, it's our job as coaches to tell you the truth. Number one, we're going to tell you the truth about your role on this team. We've got a pretty decent track record of doing that. So you, you've got to trust us to do that. And, you know, that's coaching, and, and half of it's just trust. And so if you go to your players and you're like, hey, guys, this team's really good and it's going to be a dogfight, they can see the film. They know if you're 40 points better than them. So we're, we just set goals. Hey, guys, these guys are terrible, and they don't deserve to be on the same field as you. If they get a first down, it'll be a disappointment in the first half, and we want to score a touchdown every time we get the ball. And then in our league, we have a running clock. If you get up by 40 at halftime, they have a mercy rule. And so sometimes we'll have a, a goal to do something like that. But then it's also then when you say, guys, these guys are really good, and if we do X, Y, and Z, they can beat us, they'll listen to you. What do you do as soon as the season's over to improve as a coach? Obviously, it sounds like you're very knowledgeable about other coaches, and so you know I can tell that you do that. But what are you doing? The season's over. I've got to get better as a coach for next year. I'm going to clinics. I'm reading books. What is it for you that you focus on trying to do to get better personally? Yeah, no, I think improving my character is probably the number one thing I can do. I and mean, how do you do that? Well, maybe there's things I need to be more disciplined at for sure. Uh, but I try to grow as a human being, so I study a lot. And I don't study just football. I study football some. Uh, I'll definitely try to read a couple coaching books a year from coaches I respect. You know, guys like John Wooden and Pete Carroll and uh, Phil Jackson and Bill Belichick and those guys um, that take maybe a little bit more of a cerebral approach to coaching. So I definitely will do that. But then I'll read overall sociology, psychology, religious books, Psychology is a big one that I've been really working on a lot lately and try to broaden my knowledge of human beings because at the end of the day, that's you coach human beings, right? So that's what I should be improving on the most is my ability to understand how people work and what drives them um, and the ideas that drive them. Because uh, I think it was Freud that said, no, it was uh, Jung that said, uh, people think they have ideas, but it's not true. Ideas have people. So when you can understand the ideas that are shaping your kids and yourself, then you'll have the ability to diagnose issues within those problems a little bit quicker. So I'll study those kind of things that will help me improve just as an individual. Um, but also go back and look through the last year and say, what can we do better? You know, I, there was issues where I blatantly just failed last year as a head coach. We went undefeated. But we stopped meeting quite as much because I've, I've had my coaches with me so long. We kind of know what's going on. Well, it created a vacuum of communication. And within that communication vacuum, some problems arose that I didn't have my finger on. And it was my fault because I ultimately allowed that to happen, you know. And so I had to talk through that with my coaches. And, and I realized that was a failure of mine that I need to work on. So every year, just kind of taking self-inventory and realizing that there's things that you did that you can improve on. So for you, it's not necessarily I need to learn – this scheme to improve as a coach it's i need to learn how to understand humans better and understand my kids better 
to be better as a coach. Would you, would you say that that is more important in improving your team, understanding how kids work as opposed to being an expert with a certain scheme? Yeah, I, yeah, I, definitely. Your, your interactions and your relationships are more important. Don't get me wrong, scheme is great. Like, I love scheme. You know, I majored in math. I love chess, you know, so it's like, you know, I, I love that part of it. Oh, they're doing this, and we got them with this, and how to be creative through a game plan. Like, those are really fun parts of football. I love game plan, and it's really a fun part of football. But it's not nearly as important as creating a culture and establishing good, healthy relationships with your coaches and your players. How much time do you spend on the weekend game planning for a game on average? Would you? What do you do? Is your Saturday? Are you spending a lot of Saturday breaking down film and seeing what you're going to do, and then Sunday as well? Or how do you do that? Yeah, I, I've spent less time than ever game planning because I realized how much time I wasted game planning because I would go and then I'd go in Friday and I, my brain's fried because I played the game in my head like ten times. I realized protecting my energy is actually more important because I'm more creative and think on my feet within a game better don't get me wrong you know we we certainly are watching the film and making sure we have an idea of what the team's gonna do and we're gonna grease up our cover two plays or cover one plays but i've learned you know have enough to attack every coverage or every front um or what a defense is doing grease those up have you a few little wrinkles every time maybe it's a formational wrinkle um but work on the foundation early in the season because with us, we get people that, that maybe they're a 4-3 a cover 4 team, right, all year long. And then they play us, and here they are in a 3-4 roll down playing 3 or something like that. So instead of wasting all my time preparing for that 4-3 team, I'm just like, all right, guys, they're in a 3-4 now. We know how to do what we want to do here. Here's our cover 3 routes, you know. So I think you just got to be more efficient if you can put in a base. Now, we've got super intelligent kids at Hammond, so I can carry a lot into a game, a lot of bullets. But I kind of now know – Here's my, you know, here's my routes I like against all these, and then we can pick and choose from there and add a little bit as the season goes on. I thought that was just the one a problem of us going in and game planning for something all week, practicing something all week, and then you just come out and they are in, Every. God knows what, and it's like, okay, well, the play sheet's out the window. I can go sit that on the table over there and um, do something different. So yeah, I mean that's yeah, a problem. That happens all the time. So now I'm like. We're, whatever you throw at us, we'll be ready for it. What is something for you that you've done that – you talked earlier about it, being efficient. What is something that you found out that you were doing that really didn't make a difference that you stopped doing? Because I know guys who watch 40 hours of film, and I'm like, man, eventually there's a point where it's not actually helping you be any better. Like what, what is one of those things that you've stopped doing? Yeah, I think I stopped watching so much film. Because, you know, you get an idea, you got the idea, and how do you translate on that into practice, right? Well, you line up your scout team and all that kind of stuff, and you're guessing that that's what they're going to do to align to your formation, but you don't know. And uh, so I think you get a good idea of what a team's going to do, and you practice against, you know, the one, two, three looks that you think you're going to see, and you don't get too technical with it all because the game's not that way. And just have enough in your – repertoire to kind of attack whatever they show you and, and that's where you got to be you know you got to be balanced and be able to do both not to saying that you need to be balanced every game like you were talking about if there's four people in the box let's rush for 350 yards and if they're playing cover zero let's get you know take some deep shots and hopefully hit some big balls on them and uh so i don't know i've, I've, I've not worried so much 
I, I can't control it. I don't like, I don't worry about the weather anymore. I used to, you know, I'm a former quarterback. So if it was like raining, Oh God, I'm freaking out. Like I can control the freaking weather. I mean, how stupid is that? Yeah. And I, but I can't control them either. And you, here's the thing, man, you'll never be fully prepared for a football game. It's just impossible. There's an infinite amount of plays and an infinite amount of defenses that people can run. So good luck being fully prepared. So just do the best job you can. And, you know, rest easy and call a good game on Friday night. <laughs> yeah. And one of the things that Chad was talking to me about earlier when we were talking about questions is you've lost, what, 19 games in your time as a coach at Hammond, I believe. Um, is it still at that number? 17. 17 games. Yeah, so 17 games. a little death, every one of them. So, so <laughs> only seven. I mean, that's it's unbelievable. But which one of those losses was the toughest for you? Has it gotten easier or has it gotten more difficult? Or um, is there is there a loss in there that really was the hardest one that you faced? Yeah, I'll, I'll give you I'll give you my worst loss and my best loss, okay? The worst loss was we were playing for the state championship and we had five turnovers and we fumbled the ball four times inside of their 20-yard line and lost five touchdowns. So, and we had a wonderful young man that rushed for 2,000 yards that season and he fumbled – and he had two fumbles on the whole season – and he fumbled four times, and we lost all five of our fumbles. So that one was tough to swallow because we felt like we were a better team and that we had kind of given it away. My best loss ever was also in a state championship game. We had started the year one and three. We, were, we had a really young team, and this is where you got to, you know, we learned to adapt a little bit. But I'm, I'm a hurry-up, no-huddle kind of guy, and we love throwing the ball around. Well, we couldn't do that, so we had to start huddling. We tried to start running the football a lot. Our defense went from a 4-3 to a 3-4 because we couldn't do that. And this team, Wilson Hall from Sumter, beat us 49-7 to in week four. We're 1-3, and three, right? So we changed everything, and we go on an eight-game run, and we play them in the championship game, okay? And we're down like 14-7. to seven. No, Yeah, we're down two, two scores. We're down two scores, okay? And we fumble the ball, and the kid picks it up, and he's on all fours, like knees, elbows. From Wilson Hall. So we all stop and he picks it up and goes and scores and we just watch him run 70 yards and don't even go after him. They call it a touchdown. We're down three scores to a team in the second quarter, a team that beat us 49 to 7. I called the whole team up and I said, guys, I don't care about the score. I care about this drive. Let's go score on this drive and let's go get one stop and let's go score again. Well, actually, we scored on that drive and then it was halftime. So we're down two scores. I knew we were going to get the ball back, okay? We got the ball back, went down a long drive, scored. They turned it over. We got the ball back, went down, scored. We took the lead, okay? Got it again, and we, we hit an outside zone play for a touchdown. They called back. With like three minutes to go, we'd have been up by eight. And, uh, and so we had to throw it on fourth down. They picked it, and they went down and scored with one minute to go to win the game. But we had been down by 21 to a team that killed us, and we came all the way back, took the lead, should have won the game, but didn't. And, uh, and we lost the championship game, but the, the improvement of that team over the year was really rewarding. And to watch them and how they handled themselves at that loss was my best loss ever. So. Yeah, I need to grow to the point where I can think about losses as being the best loss. It's a weakness <laughs> of mine right now. <laughs> oh, yeah. Chad's the kind of guy growing up that if you beat him in a game, you better get ready for that remote control to get thrown across the room because he was not going to be happy about it. <laughs> yeah. I, I like that to a certain extent too. You can have a little brother who got 
a couple ping pong paddles slung at his face. <laughs> Listen, I'm competitive too. I don't like losing. It's no fun, but you know, when it's going to happen, right. We're in coaching. And so uh, when it happens, just learn from it and use it for motivation and growth. Yeah. And I kind of want to turn the page here a little bit because I know you're a huge Gamecock guy and this is a topic that's always interested me. My uncle was the head coach at Sherall, and he would talk to me about this a little bit. And it was more so back in like the mid to late 2000s. But the difference between Clemson and Carolina's recruiting and the coaches and the way they've handled dealing with high school coaches, what do you think is the way that Carolina can close that recruiting gap with Clemson? Whereas, I don't know if you've heard it, but – a lot of times in the past, especially, and I'm not talking about the current staff that's at Carolina, but it seemed like Clemson's coaches were a lot more personable and accessible and just down to earth. What do you think Carolina can do to close that gap that's kind of developed or that did develop a little bit between Clemson and Carolina's recruiting? Well, if you mean like from a personal level, uh, from them to high school coaches, I think they're doing that now with Coach Muschamp. And I do think it was there. I do think under Coach Holtz and Coach Spurrier, largely mostly Coach Spurrier, just the interpersonal relationships between those coaches and high school coaches just wasn't there as much. So I think that um, Coach Muschamp, his willingness to have high school coaches come to practice whenever, come visit with them whenever, sit in meetings is is a step forward for sure. And I've seen a a difference in the last three years for sure. Okay. And that's something – that was more so back in the late 2000s that I'd always heard that. But yeah. it was interesting to me. And I know that you, you're a huge Gamecock, so I wanted to ask you that. And one of the other things we wanted to ask is I've heard some great Lou Holtz stories before. I've had a coach of mine that was a GA under him, and he told some great stuff. What's your best Lou Holtz story? Because he was the head coach when you were playing at Carolina, right? Yeah, he was. Do you have any good Lou Holtz stories in there? There's a lot of them. Um He's just—he was so witty and 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 funny, but he also got really frustrated and can be difficult at times. But I think you know, my first year was under Brad Scott. We won our first game and lost the next ten, so we were one and ten. And so Coach Holtz comes in, and you know, we think we're going to turn things around. Well, we had like a bunch of offensive linemen get hurt, and we're zero and eight, and we lose to Vanderbilt to go zero and nine. And, uh, and we played Florida and Clemson the next two weeks. So it was clear we are going 0-11, right? So we lose to Vandy, and Coach Holtz walks into the locker room. He goes, Brad Scott deserves a trophy this damn big for winning one game with your sorry asses. And then he walked out. So that's one of my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> the impersonation. That's a is great impression. Yeah, wow. so that was the that's a hard one to do. Probably has the best impersonation. And Phil Petty. Phil Petty has a great Lou Holtz impersonation. But I'm probably in the top three. So, <laughs> so that was his only words post game. He ran in oh, and said that. I think that week it was something like, "You come to South Carolina, one of two regions. Either you're a loser or you want to be surrounded by losers." <laughs> oh my god! Oh man, that's that is, hilarious. Well, I learned a lot of good things from him too. And, and his his son Skip and I were close, and he hired me as a GA when I was done. And uh, so, you know, again, anytime you learn, anytime you're you're playing for somebody or coaching for somebody, take what you would do, take what you wouldn't do, and then go be yourself. So I'm sure there's things I do that some of my assistants are like, I would not do things that way. 
What made him? What do you think made him a great coach? I mean, he won a national championship, Notre Dame, and all that stuff. What was he great at? <laughs> well, you know, he was a good motivator. It was an old school way. I mean, he was a Woody Hayes disciple. You right. know, Woody got fired from Ohio State for punching a punch right. player. On the yeah. Side. So, um, you know, so there were times where he was really, really good when he let his assistant coaches coach, and he kind of sat back and managed the team um, and motivated from that standpoint. He was really, really good. I think sometimes he tried to I kind of get in the way a little too much, and that's what hurt him. Yeah, so we're about to wrap it up here, Coach, but I wanted to give you a chance to talk a little bit about your podcast. And uh, I've actually listened to it and really enjoyed it, uh, the Fade In podcast. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about what that's about? Yeah, I just – I mean, I think I'm probably having some kind of midlife crisis. So <laughs> I was like – is this what I'm going to do the rest of my life? Just coach football. And I felt like, you know, with the pot, just like you guys are doing now, there was an opportunity there that people just enjoy when people who know what they're talking about, talk about football because it's, it's, it's a common kind of tongue, so to speak for everyone. Everyone kind of understands the game a little bit, but not in the detail that like guys like you do, where you can sit up in the stands and you kind of diagnose plays and, and, and see what's going on. Um, so there, no one was really doing that with Carolina football. And I thought, you know, it'd be cool. And I value face-to-face. And so we're, we go to River Rat Brewery, which uh, it's cool. We can all sit down, have a beer, look face-to-face. And I usually have three other guests on, former Gamecocks. You know, Steve Pantyhill comes on a lot, Ryan Brewer, uh, Perry Orth. Um, just had Skarnekia on. So I've had a lot of guys on. Some good media guys, too. Uh, we'll come on here and there, and even some former coaches. I had Ellis Johnson and Brad Lawing on a good bit last year. Um, and But just sit around and talk about the Gamecocks and kind of break them down from a you know, former player, former coach, uh, more of a detail and schematics standpoint. And I just thought people would enjoy it. And so did it last year because why not? You know, if you're, I always say if you're not growing, you're dying. So I wanted to challenge myself to do that and kind of go out on a limb, knowing I'd probably catch a little bit of flack for it because I'm a high school coach too. Right. Um, but you know what? I don't care. And I enjoyed doing it. And we got some, some good people on and, and I'm looking forward to starting season two, uh, August 13th. We'll get cranked up and we just do it every Tuesday night at river rat. We go over there, like I said, sit around and drink a beer and talk about, you know, the game and what's going on. So it's been a fun deal for me again, just to, kind of grow as an individual and put myself out there a little bit. Been doing a little bit more radio lately too. Um, so I just, you know, the more you have to get up for in the morning, the more you can fight that, you know, our tendency to be stagnant that we're trying to coach our kids away from. Um, and so I had to kind of ask myself if I was, if I was getting stagnant and if so, why? And so I think I needed some opportunities to really kind of push myself and grow. And, and this has definitely been a product of that. I'll tell anybody, if you're a football fan, you should listen, because I'm a, I'm a Clemson fan, and I listened to it, and I enjoyed it, and uh, it was it was good stuff. It was entertaining. It was interesting. Uh, there were some good stories on there, so I'd say anybody who likes football should give it a listen for sure. You're a Clemson fan, so what do you know about suffering or struggling? You know nothing. You got- <laughs> it's going pretty good right now. The Tommy, the Tommy Bowden and the Tommy West years weren't the best. I do, I do remember that, but yeah, I can't. I can't complain about a lot. I've uh, I've got it made right now. We're 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 rolling. Job up there, they really are. They've got a special staff and a special uh, thing going on right now for sure. So I, I don't see them going away anytime soon. No, I, I don't either. But I do think Carolina's on the rise. I think Carolina's going to improve. I know next year their schedule is really tough, 
But I think they're heading in the right direction. But it's just going to come down to getting good players. If they can yeah. get good players and continue to get good players. They- yeah, I think what's exciting is that there's a foundational commitment now from the administration with the new facilities. I think Coach Muschamp's going to be here a long time. And I think that uh, he's, he's the right guy for the job. And uh, I'm excited about the trajectory of the program right now. I think the thing that we can't do as Carolina fans is compare ourselves to Clemson right now or compare ourselves to Georgia. We have our own, you know, mountain that we got to climb. It's the SEC East. And that's where our focus needs to be. So next year, can we just beat freaking Kentucky? Like, that'd be a step in the right direction. If you can do, if you can get Kentucky and Vanderbilt the same year this year, then that, that'll be a good one. You get the Kentucky and the Vanderbilt. It's, uh, coming. it's coming. That locker room looks a lot different than it did three years ago. So I expect us to have a very competitive season. Yeah, maybe we'll have a good game uh, at Thanksgiving this year. My uncle will be talking a lot of junk to me. I know that regardless of whether the Gamecocks are expected to win. So, yeah, South Carolina's a lot of good things happening in high school and college. But, Coach Camry, man, I appreciate you coming on. I think that you gave us a lot of insight, a lot of advice, and really probably something a lot of guys haven't thought about before in terms of coaching. So, I appreciate you coming on with us. Yeah, man. Thanks, guys, and good luck to you guys for the rest of this podcast. Thank you so much, Coach. Chad, there was a lot of – Insight I got from that, I think I learned a lot from that conversation with Coach Kimry. One of the really interesting things that he said to me, and it's really odd to hear a guy who's lost 17 times say that losing can be one of the most beneficial things that happens to you. And I say it's odd because maybe if he lost 200 games, his perspective might be a little bit different. But he said losing can be really beneficial. And I remember also UConn's women's uh, coach. What's his name again? Um, yeah, I've, I've heard him talk about that, too, and he's lost so little. But I think that when you win so much, you see the value in losing more. And the way that Coach Kimry handles losing seems to be really good, and he uses it to teach and to teach lessons about life. Uh, at this point, you're, what do you feel for you? Do you feel like you're able to do that at this point? Do you think it's kind of hard for you to take a loss and try to teach guys from it? Is it too much anger you're feeling at the time? Well, I mean, there's a couple of things that go into that. From my perspective, it is, I mean, the no loss is a, or, or a loss can be a good loss. I just don't think that's practical at the time, in real time, because we can't live our life. Like, yes, I can go forward. And when I look back, I can say, okay, we learned this from that. That was great. And we were able to turn it into this. But that's not the way we live, obviously. We live in the moment. And so in the moment, I just don't really agree that a loss can be good. Because I would trade in the moment, which is the way we actually live, I would trade a bad win. I'd take that over a good loss every single time against any opponent, any day of the week. If the scoreboard's turned on, I'll take the bad win over whatever you would consider a good loss. So that's just it for me. And, I mean, I don't know. That's, I think, more practical. That's the way it is. I know that you kind of take the other side, though. You agree with him more than I do, probably. Well, in the here and now, it's there's never a game you go into and you say, it'd be good for us to lose tonight. But how life works, and you said, yeah, like that's our initial reaction. We don't like losing. But it's the same thing in any loss you have in your life. Imagine like if there's a guy who really loves a girl and he's dating her and she breaks up with him. he's probably going to be devastated at the time, but then that doesn't mean that something good can't come from it. Same thing with a football game. You never would choose to lose a state championship game. But what if that's 
Ball coaches don't worry about girls breaking up with them. Correct. They just have one that cooks and cleans and does everything, and they don't care about it. That's right. a true ball coach. Shut up. But <laughs> what happens in life, and, and with football even, you could go win a state championship or go lose a state championship your first time playing for it, and that could give you an insight and a new motivation that you never had before and lead to you winning more state championships than you would have in the first place. And in the moment, you never would have chosen to lose that game. So, yeah, like looking forward in life, you don't say, I want to lose this. But I think you're passing up a really good opportunity anytime you decide not to take advantage of a loss and try to teach your team from it. There's a quote from Vince Lombardi, and the reason that I know this quote is because it was on a loading screen for NFL Street on PlayStation 2 when I was like fifth grade, and it always stuck with me. But he said that you can learn a page from a win, and you can learn an entire book from a loss, which is a true statement from the simple fact if you play perfect against a terrible team or whatever, like, yeah, you can't learn a lot about your team when that happens, whereas if you lose – to a good team and you don't do things really well, you can understand where your team's shortcomings are, you can address those. And so that is a true statement. So you definitely need to take advantage of a loss. But, I mean, to me, it's just a lot of that stuff isn't necessarily – some of that stuff is is impractical in the in the moment, is, is all I'd say, which is the way we actually live our life. And going further than that, for me, I think – Coach Kimry's unbelievable, and he's amazing, and I agree with him on basically almost everything he said in the interview. But I do think it's a little bit different when he's been coaching for how long he's been coaching, and he's had 17 losses. I've been head coach for two years, and I've already got seven. So I do think that that changes the mindset of that, too. When you lose so rarely, it is easier to sort of um, take those and be – um, and have a better perspective on losing and how what you can learn from a loss when it's so rare for him. And, I mean, obviously that's a credit to him for losing so little. But I do think from that standpoint, same thing with Junior R. Emma, I mean, they, those guys lose. They go years and years without losing once. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's an easier pill to swallow when you don't lose as much. You could take the other side of that, though, and say they're not used to losing, so they could take it worse. But – he, he took it really well. And I like the quote that he said from John Wooden that talked about success is when you've given your greatest effort. And I think if you're a coach and you're going out there after a game that you played a superior opponent and your players played as hard as they can, and yeah, maybe they fumbled the ball because the linebacker's six foot four, 250 pounds, and eats rocks for breakfast and knocked it out of little Johnny's hands. But if your guys gave their greatest effort, I think you're doing a disservice to your team if you go out there and rip them after the game. Do you agree with that? Oh, I want to. Yeah, for sure. I've ripped, I've ripped a team when we were up 42 to nothing at halftime. I was ripping a team at halftime. I mean, just ripping them, ranting and raving. All oh, your parents are going to think you're great because you was 42 to nothing. Fans up in the stands think y'all are awesome because it's 42 to nothing. And in fact, they were playing. We really were not playing well at all against a bad team. Yeah, we were up 42 nothing. It should have been even worse. They got some first downs that they honestly just shouldn't have got. That's how much better we were than them. And I've also had the opposite to a degree where we've played a team where I'm not going to say I was happy, but, you know, I, I'll tell you who it was. My first year at C. Murray, we lost to Bamberg. And we lost to them, I think, maybe 28-12 to maybe. That team went on to 
almost won the state championship. They ended up losing the state championship, I think, like 12 to 6 or whatever, 2A state. I mean, they were unbelievable team. They had bigger guys than we were, even well coached and all that stuff. And so I wasn't necessarily happy, but I did know our guys went out there and fought and competed. You know, we that, that team blew a lot of teams out. They definitely didn't blow us out. We even had a chance there late. You know, there's a never a point where they could take their starters out. So, I mean, yeah, it can go both ways for sure. And, but to me, that's only when you're overmatched, like truly overmatched. I think that anytime you're even and you're not truly overmatched, that in those situations, like, I don't, I don't care if we get six turnovers, man, we need to win. Like, that's yeah. as opposed to zero turnovers and losing, like, I'll take that every time when we're evenly matched. I think when it does get to a situation where either you're playing a team that's overmatched by you or you're playing a team where you're overmatched, that's when I think some of those other things can definitely come into play for sure. Um, and with me coaching at 1A, and you've coached at 2A before too, and we've been on both sides of that, th- That those things do come into play in high school, obviously. You know, you're not going to play equal talent all the time. So, yeah, I mean, that's the way. But to me, I think expanding on that too that's interesting is how do, how we handle losses. I handle losses terribly. What about you? They're difficult for sure. I think it's harder when you're the head coach to face a loss because everything's on you. Whereas in an assistant, and you can relate to this too, when you were an assistant, you didn't have the full control over everything that was happening. That doesn't mean you didn't care about it. That doesn't mean when you were at Sumter or Sherall that you didn't care when you lost. It's just that your name is not attached to that record at the end of the year. So it's hard, and I think it's really hard when you lose to a team that's not better than you. And I'll say at my time at North Myrtle Beach, I don't think we've lost to a team that was not as good as us. I'm I'm just saying that off the top of my head. I'd have to go back and look at it. But the teams that we've lost to have been teams that at the least have been evenly matched with us and sometimes have had better players. So it's not that hard when you're when you go out there and you know we're playing a team that's better than us. If we win, I'm gonna be happy, but if we lose, I wanna make sure we played with full effort it's not a really hard thing to deal with when your team goes out there and they play hard and they just don't win. It's, it's not fun because you always want to win, but you can handle that a little bit better. Wouldn't you agree with that? Yeah. I mean, I definitely, it's, it's, it was easier to lose at Sumter, which we didn't very often because as being an assistant, I mean, it just is different. Your name's not the one that's in the paper. I think for me, what was always, what was difficult is, even when we won, I mean, we won a game at Sumner against South Florence where, you know, we, I think we won 42 to 41 and they were throwing the ball all over us and I was DB's coach. And so looking at that, that was almost as tough as one of the games where we lost earlier in the year where, you know, we played fine on the back end. Really, we played actually really, really well and we still lost the game, but my position group kind of did what they were supposed to do. And so overall, I hated that we lost, but I was kind of, you know, when you've got that one specific group, have y'all ever lost the game at North Myrtle Beach, even against a better team where you were like, the offensive line could have played better and that could have made the difference? Because that's probably what is the toughest ones for you. Yeah, I, when we played Myrtle Beach last year in the third round, they had a defensive end that had like five sacks. I mean, he he was just getting it. So, yeah, that was really difficult. And I was at that the, game. That was yeah. a tough one. Golly. Yeah, I mean, I mean at, at the end of the day, last year, Myrtle Beach – had an amazing defensive line, and they had a really talented team. And we fought, and we almost beat them the first time we played them. But when we played them in the playoffs, they were just rolling. I mean, they beat us, they beat Hartsville, then they beat 
uh, Greer to win state. So they were rolling, and it may not have helped us win the game necessarily, but we would have been in a better situation if we hadn't given up those sacks. So that was definitely tough, to, uh, tough to deal with. But uh, yeah, I get what you're saying. If your position group is the one that lets the team down, that's really difficult to digest, and uh, you want to always make sure as a position coach that your group isn't the group that lets the team down. Right. I mean, as a head coach, when we lose, obviously, like I'm looking at what everybody can do better, which I'm doing that every week. But when we lose as a head coach, I'm getting, you know, I don't handle loss as well. So I get mad and depressed and all of this and don't smile and food doesn't taste as good and all that crap. And but like I'm as soon as the film gets on there and it gets uploaded at midnight on Friday night, I'm immediately looking to see. What are the reasons for? And I'm writing down in my notebook all the things I'm watching every play. Who did something wrong? Who did something right on every play? Going through it even more with a fine-tooth comb when we lose. And so if there's a position group that's not doing as well, or nobody's the reason, everybody's always the reason, but didn't play as well or could have done better, could have done something differently, then that's sort of where the pressure is going to go. I mean, it just is. I mean, that's because that's what needs to be better. You know, if you're losing games because a certain thing, because you're you're not running the ball well enough because your offensive line is not run blocking well enough, well, that does need to be addressed so it doesn't happen again. What do you think that for people, what do you think the level for a head coach is of how mad should you get? Do you think I'm insane for getting that upset? For getting how upset? Just like being like just moping around and all that stuff, which honestly, it used to be worse. It's gotten like every year gets a little bit better, to be honest with you. I don't think you're insane. I think that sometimes you're probably irrational about it. I think that you wow. act like it's I mean, I'll talk to you and you'll act like a bad practice on a Tuesday during the spring means y'all are gonna lose every game next year. And then the next day I talk to you and y'all had a good practice and it, it, you're on top of the world. It's your emotions and it's your reaction and that's what you care about. So I understand that you're gonna be upset when you lose, but I think that sometimes just being like, you know what? It's not the end of the world. These guys are 16 years old. They're going to come to practice Monday. We're going to get it right, and then we're going to go out and play next week and hopefully win. And if we win next week, then you know what? I'm going to feel a lot better. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think that, like, Coach Barnes at Sumter, he's been doing it forever. You know, I think that he is able to compartmentalize, and it amazes me how he does it, but he's able to compartmentalize bad practices or a bad portion of practice and understand that I, I guess ultimately that's not going to matter. That's something that we talk about all the time, what matters and what doesn't matter in real life. And I'll sit here and pick on certain things that obviously don't matter. And then I'll turn around and be pissed off because we had a bad practice on a Tuesday and just, which everybody has bad practices, but i never think about that. Yeah. Chad. So coaches cliche for this week, I've got a good one. And we talked about this with Kyle Richardson. What do you think about coaches saying, get somebody in there that can do it? It's, it, it's said on every sideline. Whenever a coach sees somebody, especially a head coach, when they see somebody that's not doing their job, get somebody in there that can do it. Every coach listening to this has probably heard that at some point. Okay, does that let's, – let's talk about it in this context. Does it help you win to say, get somebody in there that can do it? And usually – it's not black and white, but go ahead. I think, and I truly believe this, yes, I okay. do. I think that that is something that makes sense to say. As long as you are a team that is not, like, truly overmatched in all the games you play, like, if you have a team that's good enough for you to reasonably be able to go into a season and say, 
we should be able to compete for a region championship. You know, we should be able to compete to make the playoffs. Like, as long as you've got a chance to be reasonably good, I think that is a completely legitimate thing to say. Well, and I know you don't think that. I, I don't agree with that because when you were at C. Murray, if your left tackle was getting killed, what do you want your offensive line coach to do? You're a 1A school. You probably don't have five good offensive linemen. You probably have three or four. Your one of them is probably decent and just getting by. What do you? What does your coach have to do? How is he supposed what, to fix that problem? What I actually want him to do. Okay, we'll take yeah. C. Murray. All right, we had two good tackles. Those were our two best linemen. All right, both years. I would want if, they, if my left tackle is getting killed, do something, flip him, take the right tackle, move him to the left tackle. I don't care if he's never practiced there before. If this dude is ruining our game, just flip, do something. something. Hey, why don't you say that? Why don't Come you say out that of the press box and like just rip the kid and tell them that you're going to send him to the locker room if he don't start blocking him. Do well, is that going to make him do some, it? Don't care. Do something. <laughs> do something. So why don't you say what you actually mean then? Well, here's the thing. Like, okay, let's say if if he's really getting killed, just destroyed, all right, that means that he's already – it can't be much worse, okay, it, from whatever he's do, doing. Usually eh. at, when a coach is saying that, well, I'll, I'll use me. When I'm saying that, it means that it's like it really is terrible. I'm not – if the kid's just playing bad, you won't hear me saying that. Usually I hear coaches say it, it's because like it's a disaster out there. If it's a disaster show out there, then yes. Take the right tackle, move them to the left tackle. Do I don't care. Do something. Take a guard and throw him out there. Take the freshman off the bench and let him go get killed and sit the other guy on the bench and like let him be mad. But I do think that that makes perfect sense to me. You gotta do something. What's the point? Why are you out there playing if you're not you gonna do that? something? Then why don't you say Get it takes too long to say all that. It takes too long to else, say. Get someone else in there. Not if you. That implies get someone in there that could do it. Implies that someone else can do the job. Whereas at my level, when we're at four A, that makes more sense to me to say. I think that four A level, you have a guy. Makes sense so, to say at four A. Yeah. So a coach says, get somebody in there that can do it. We probably can. But when you're at CE Murray or a one A school, get somebody in there that can do it. Doesn't make sense. I think it should be. Get somebody else in there. So yeah, like we can send little Johnny out there and let him look. Why like is it always head. little Johnny? Why is Johnny the name of some terrible player? Like there have been know. some good Johnnies at some point. I don't. I don't know. Johnny Unitas was all right, but I, <laughs> people say it, so I say it. It's one of the. Co- it's, it's just a coach thing. Man, yeah. You know? If you're a ball coach, you understand who Johnny is. He's yeah, just that big guy, is. Booster Club president, son. But yeah, you have Booster Club president's son. He's five foot three, one hundred and thirty pounds. And every time you talk about him, he gets smaller and smaller and slower and slower. It makes my I, case sound better. You know, personally, I haven't ever coached any five three hundred and thirty pound players that I had to it, run out there. And his position, his position is the offensive line. He's yeah. backup O line. It just keeps getting smaller, keeps getting slower. I mean, we've had some short ones, but you know, I think five seven's probably the bottom end for people that I've coached. So. Yeah, you put him out there, he's not going to do the job. So get somebody in there that can do it doesn't make a ton of sense to me. But I guess our our takeaway from that is my thoughts are it can you make sense. You need to say it differently. Yeah, that's, it. that's really what it yeah. is. Instead say, of saying get somebody in there that can do it, you would just rather get somebody else in there. Correct, because that's a clear communication of like for you telling your coach, okay, he wants someone in there that can – just someone else in there. Because there have been – 
like if you tell them get someone in that could do it, your coach is probably thinking, uh, I don't think I have anybody. But if you say get another human in there, okay, I know this human that can go in. He has the right number on. Basically, that's what it comes down to at 1A. Who is wearing 50 through 79? You're in. <laughs> Even if we have to throw another jersey on somebody is what it has come down to hey, at certain points. No lie. We, we literally had a kid. Literally had a kid. I've told people this when I've spoken in front of groups. This is a thing I always like to tell people that don't understand 1A. We had a kid against Bamberg in that same game that I was just talking about catch a 30-yard bubble screen for a touchdown. All right, He was our second leading receiver on the team. Had to call a timeout after the touchdown to because we had a guard get a cramp. Had to call a timeout. Take him. He was number two. Take him to the sideline. Play tight end slot receiver for us, take off his number two, throw a number 53 on, and put him in at guard for the two point conversion against a lower state champion in 2A. That's what we had. And, and it was a close game. Like that touchdown, like took us down by, I think, one score. Like in a close game, that's what we literally had to do in 1A. Like you 4A people, man, y'all don't even understand. Y'all just, y'all got it made. I just got like, I, that stressed me out so much. I can't imagine having to think about, oh, we have to take the kid who just ran a touchdown in and put this jersey on him. Was there? Why didn't you put it on somebody on the sideline? That was there was no there was nobody else. Like that was it. He was the next biggest guy. Like he was the ne- he was he literally our second leading receiver was our next biggest human that could we just said I mean he'll. It literally told him, get in a three-point stance and just block straight. Just find somebody and block them. And, like, we ran ISO or something. Um, but, I mean, that's to me, though, thinking about this now, I feel like you're trying to take some accountability off of yourself, too, though, as a position coach. I'm really not. Ah, we can't do it. So, but, but to me, your job is to be able to block them. Your Correct. job as offensive line coach is to get your offensive line to be able to successfully block the other team. That's your job. Correct. So, so I would say I'm not it. doing my – I'm saying my I didn't do my job well enough, but I don't have anybody else that can do it. I'll <laughs> take the blame, but at the same time, I'm going to be rational. Like, yeah, well, I didn't good. do a good enough – I didn't do a good enough job at teaching him how to block this kid, but I didn't teach anybody else it well enough either. That's so, fair. Yeah. I mean, I'm not I trying to like say – We're a whole lot better at coming to conclusions and arguments on this podcast than – we are in real life, or we were growing up. Yeah. They never came to positive conclusions back in the day. Yeah, a lot of broken glass and <laughs> arguments that were extremely loud and insane. Yeah, we'll, we'll get into some of those later on on the podcast. But I think it's been a great episode. Coach Kimry was awesome. It really uh, was. Guys, if y'all have any ideas for topics for the podcast please shoot us an email at the coaches drive at gmail.com we'd love to hear from y'all and see what y'all think would be good topics for us to go over and uh, we have more guests coming on we're excited about but make sure to send us an email chad you got something one thing that we're going to do too in the future is start letting you guys know who is going to be coming on the podcast and so you can Shoot us something on Facebook. Send us an email about any questions that you might have for the guests coming up. Now, that might not be, happen until later on in the summer or later on in the fall. But that is something that we are planning on doing is giving you guys a heads up. And so that if you have something um, that you, hey, that's a coach that I want to ask something specific. It could even be scheme. 
anything. And then if it's something good that we can bring up, then we'll definitely try to do that for you, for you listeners. For sure. And we're guys, we're, we have the website, www.thecoachesdrive.com. Our podcast is on there. We're on Facebook at the coaches drive podcast. You can search that join and like our page. And that's where we'll put a lot of those resources and we'll put a lot of those questions. And then on Twitter, we have at the at coaches drive is our, is our name. So at coaches drive, follow us on there. We're on YouTube. Listen, uh, subscribe, rate, and review, and we'll be back soon talking to some Download, uh, subscribe, rate, review, download, unsubscribe, and subscribe again. There you go. All right, guys. See you.